This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. In a few short days, the Northern Hemisphere will celebrate the winter solstice, that moment in the planetary position when the North Pole is at its furthest from the life-giving warmth of the sun, and the sun is at its most southerly declination in relation to us, when our nights are at their longest and our daylight hours are at their shortest. We have the months of winter's dormancy for resting, rooting, dreaming, planning, and plotting to look forward to. And this week, as ballast for the winter journey, we're joined by floral artist Amy Merrick. She's sharing with us her garden life journey and the quasi-life journal for her and instructional for us that is her new book, On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist, celebrating the delights of humble, luxurious, everyday flowers for us to dream on. Welcome, Amy. Thank you so much for having me. So give us a little bit of a description, Amy, of what your plant and flower and garden-based life looks like right now. So personal and professional, what is your relationship to, to plants and flowers right now? Um, well, right now, having just finished this book, I think um, I originally started my career as a florist, doing all different kinds of flowers for events. Um, but right now, I really am focusing on writing and traveling and still arranging flowers, um, but mostly for for my own kind of private enjoyment, um, but also, you know, still, still doing some floristry. Um, but I'm primarily, yes, a, a writer and photographer and teaching, um, teaching about flowers. And where are you currently based? Well, I have been going back and forth between the UK, living in London, and then also spending time in New England, so in New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And you have done quite a bit of work as well in uh, Japan and other places far afield. Is that still an ongoing part of your work? It is. I think I had to kind of settle down for a few years or a year <laughs> or so to really do that kind of editing and um, kind of actual making of the book. Uh, so I haven't, haven't been traveling so far afield, um, but I'm hoping in the next year to be able to continue to go back to Japan to teach classes and also still to kind of continue my own education. Um, so I think through celebrating the book and having a little bit more freedom, we'll be able to get back out on the road. Yeah. And there is such a kind of a dilemma and sometimes it's a conflict, but also sometimes it's this just nice dance back and forth between actually being with flowers and then working on things like making a book which is about flowers, but sometimes takes us away from the actual thing itself that we love so much and brings it to us in a a slightly different way, I think. Yeah, I think in the process of making the book, I got to kind of live into flowers in so many different ways. So Mm -hmm. even if I wasn't arranging flowers or working in a garden, um, I was seeing them everywhere and and experiencing them on all levels of my life. So 
So I felt like they were always with me. Always, yes. And with you in lots of fun (laughs) and really just beautiful, whimsical, personal ways, which we will get into more deeply. The subtitle of the book is Lessons from an Accidental Florist, which has really beautiful sort of overtones and undertones. But before we go there, let's go back a little bit and have you share with listeners who may not be familiar with your work, uh, whether in your floristry journey, your writing for the Wall Street Journal and other great publications, and your presence on social media, such as Instagram. Give people a little bit of a background on the earliest people and places and plants that grew you into a plant person, Amy. Sure. I think, you know, my family is this really natural kind of conscious family. And I think from the earliest memories that I have, we were always outside Um, So definitely kind of growing up in this environment where people really cared about the about the world around you and um, encouraged us to to be outside at every possible moment, Um, that it was impossible, you know, impossible not to fall in love um, with plants and flowers. And I think, you know, my parents were so great about taking us to all different kinds of gardens and all different kinds of museums. And um, I think you know, the earliest, one of the earliest memories I have of flowers was going to Longwood Gardens um, Mm. outside of Philadelphia. Um, And my family is, it was like a two hour drive for us, but we went many times a year. It was just like family religion. Um, (laughs) And my mom always saying, you can't pick any flowers. Like, you, you just can't pick the flowers here. Um, it's, It's not what you do. But she said, if you ever see a flower that's on the ground, you know, you can have it. <laughs> it's <our> game. <laughs> um, and when you walk into the, the the glass house there on the left, there's this like alley of camellias and camellias are so luscious and, and beautiful and drop petals and flowers like crazy. Um, so I was just like there stuffing my pockets with flowers. <laughs> and I think if my mom wouldn't have said, you couldn't have taken any flowers, then maybe I wouldn't have become a florist. It was like, oh my gosh, I have to, I have to have these things. That's great. Yeah, I think it was it was like a childhood in gardens and outside that it was just I had no other choice. (laughs) Yeah. Well, and that's so funny because that really brings up a a universal aspect of being a child and being in love with flowers is that like, do you pick? Can you pick? How do you pick? All of these things come up. And if you're a gardener and you have a small child in your garden, figuring out how to welcome them and make them love the flowers and not have them just pop the heads off of every single bloom. It's a balance. It's a it's a fine line. Yeah, that definitely happened in our family. And I think like I think it was maybe my older sister, but she did a you know, my dad does like a big daffodil display and she, he's so excited for them. And I think he got her really excited. And then she just like popped off every head, like right before they were about to bloom. And then it was like no touching of the flowers <laughs> after that. It's not just a problem for children. I mean, that's the funny thing about being having a background as a florist and now going in working in gardens. And there is this unspoken like dilemma of loving of loving flowers and loving cut flowers and loving living with them, but also loving gardens is that like the two actually... Um, 
you know, it's hard, it's hard to find the the perfect middle ground of like, when can you take the flower? Right. Um, and you actually explore this really beautifully in a couple of different places in the book in ways that I just found myself smiling. Uh, there's at least one interlude where you, there's a, uh, you talk about finding flowers and being hungry for green while living in New York City and and asking permission to cut some flowering weedy plants in an empty lot. And it's a beautiful human moment. And so that, that kind of carries us quite naturally to the book. Uh, but before we get right there, just give us the, the little segue between who you were as little Amy uh, with this nature-loving family and this really beautifully articulated valuing of gardens by these field trips and pilgrimages to places like Longwood. How did you find yourself starting to work in floristry and did you train in it or was this one of the happy accidents, Amy? This was definitely the the title accident of, <laughs> um, of, of being an accidental florist was I loved nature and I loved being creative, but for some reason in my head, I didn't think, oh, you know, floristry, that's something that you can do in a really, you know, unusual way. I didn't see it necessarily as like a good means for personal expression. And I think as a teenager, you know, I had this beautiful natural upbringing and then was like, oh man, I need to rebel. I need to like move to New York City to like prove myself and make it. (laughs) And so, you know, I moved to New York, I studied fashion, I worked in fashion for a little bit. And then I was like, oh my gosh, I can't do this anymore. This is really not, um, I just, it wasn't the thing. It wasn't the thing for me. And I started working as a prop stylist, doing kind of magazine photo shoots and I was working at an antique store and then I started design writing and I had like my hands full of like a thousand different freelance jobs and then just really missed this kind of natural connection that I had growing up and thought oh it would be so nice to take a flower ranging class that would be such a lovely thing to do but then I started looking and they were all you know pretty expensive and I was like oh gosh I'm 21 or 22 and you know I can't afford any of these like really long, intensive kind of floristry workshops. Mm -hmm. And I found a great flower shop in Brooklyn and um, she was looking for an intern. So, you know, for one day a week, I I worked um, at a flower shop and I got paid in flowers Mm -hmm. and felt like I had totally cheated the system because I was like, (laughs) I'm getting flowers. I don't have to pay. Um, This is like the best thing. And so that was kind of the beginning of it. And I think when I first started, it just made sense. Like from day one, I was like, oh, this is a way I can be really creative, make things with my hands, get to work on all different kinds of fun projects, but also have a connection to the natural world. It was just like a, it was a moment of yes. Yeah. Yeah. And a perfect confluence of all your training to that point, which I, I love when my guests' stories do that, is you you take these little kind of side journeys and you decide, no, that's not the right journey. But there's something about that journey that informs what you then do go on to, to do and to become. And um, I think that's so – it's good for, for anyone at any age to hear – that coming together of sometimes disparate parts. So you find yourself in floristry in New York City, and 
you covered this quite beautifully in the book too. So now I'm going to just move us to the book and have you give us a little bit of a description of at this point in your career, this many years later from that launching point of starting to work in floristry, of being an intern and learning the craft and the trade as well, parts of it, um, you all these years later put together this book. And it's not that you're at the end of your career, it's just, but it is kind of a retrospective from this moment to the beginning. And it compiles really in quirky and personal and artistic ways, uh, sort of everything you've learned in different ways, little sidebars and photos, little scrapbook elements, but also some very moving essays throughout the book. Tell us why this book, why now, and talk a little bit about your process and your own personal purpose for it. Yeah, I think, um, well, this book right now, I think, you know, it, it was almost, it is almost a fluke that, that it kind of came together in the and that so maybe that's like accident number two, mm-hmm. which which is you know also I I do believe in accidents, but I also think anything that you do you know you work obviously work really hard to manifest. So there can be like a spark of accident, um, mm-hmm. but but I think you know it was maybe eight or nine years ago that a f- publisher first kind of approached me about working on a book, and. I was completely intoxicated by the idea of it, um, but I thought, oh my gosh, you know, there's so many books in the world, and how am I going to write one that really means something to me and has like a, a kind of deeper, uh, you know, I just wanted to write a really great book. I didn't want to just write a book about how how to arrange flowers, and so I kind of held off held off the publishers for, for a few years. And, um, in, in that intervening time, you know, I, I had established this large floral studio in New York and then kind of turned my back on it a bit and moved to a little, you know, an off the grid Island where I worked on a flower farm, um, for a while and then moved to Japan where I started teaching my own, um, flower arranging style and also learning Ikebana and had kind of so many different journeys. Um, And finally, after all of these years of like running around the world, running around the globe, this artisan, my amazing publisher, um, Leah Ronan, who is the the publisher there, um, you know, she just sent me an email that was like, hey, Amy, you know, it's been four years. Like, do you want to do a book now? Are you ready? Because we really want to do a flower book. Um, and we really want it to be with you, but like, if you're not ready, we just need to, we need to move on. Um, and I was sitting at the time when I got that email with my Ikebana teacher who had become a really, really close friend. And, um, and I, I, I turned to him and I was like, I just got this email and what do I say? Um, and he was like, Amy, you just write down. He was like, right now, you don't think anything about it. You just write. Yes. You just say, yes, I'm ready to do the book. And then, and then you'll, you know, you can figure it out afterwards, but what you have to do right now is just say yes. And I think it wasn't until the point where I was able to step away from, from the, 
kind of business that I had built in New York and then kind of gone to learn how to become a flower farmer and grow grow flowers and you know go from selling these like enormous ridiculously expensive bridal bouquets to then you know actually harvesting all the flowers and making these beautiful $12 a bunch bouquets and selling them at the at the San Juan Island County Farmers Market mm-hmm. on Saturday mornings that I felt like I had enough experience enough different kinds of experiences to to understand flowers from all of these different levels yeah and that that would be enough for me to kind of if I could if I could harness all of those different things and kind of find a way to put them all in one book that would be a a book that was worth waiting you know nearly a decade to write um so that's kind of how how we how we are where we are right now the I think for for me looking at this and um at the age I am and where I am in my career and I think about my daughters who are just in college and then I think about the journey that you've shared in the book and I think one of the important things it captures so beautifully is this this ebb and flow of of what it means to be in relationship with plants, but also in relationship with yourself working with them and your, your, you know, building up of this great career in New York that's sort of, you know, at least on paper, everything that anyone might want from a career. And then the kind of personal burnout or or like stuck place you got to that then sent you to the small flower farm. It's such a beautifully moving depiction of what it is when we hit a wall in our lives and what we decide to do with that. Will you describe that a little bit? Because I just think it's so important for people on their own paths to hear about people they admire and how they handle this kind of a moment in life. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, the kind of beauty of of nature is its kind of constant change. It's like the one thing that you can you can rely upon is that every day will be different. And I really feel like, you know, in my own life and in my own career, the kind of ultimate goal or hope is that I always give myself the freedom to grow into a different version or like the, to either grow higher into a different version of myself or to like let my roots grow deeper and become more solid in who I am. And I think, you know, working as a florist in New York, it was so fantastic, you know, fantastically rewarding to to build this thing up. But then at the end of the day, I just thought, is this it? Is this like the plateau? Is this the moment that I, I just continue on with the same thing? And I thought, no, I want to I wanna challenge myself and learn more and go deeper and kind of experience this thing I love on all of these different levels. And honestly, it's really terrifying yeah. to, to, to kind of continue to, to push yourself to try things that you're afraid of. And it's much easier just to say, okay, I feel comfortable in, in, in the spot that I'm in and I'm just going to keep on doing this. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Amy Merrick is a floral person, a florist and a writer, a teacher and a student. She's with us today speaking about her journey to her first book, 
On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist. We'll be right back after the break. Hey, it's Jennifer. So maybe you could all guess as to what I took away from this first part of our conversation with Amy Merrick. I bet you can. The artistry and regenerative creativity of her path notwithstanding. That last bit there about allowing yourself the freedom to grow, embracing the growth and moving with it to grow higher or root more deeply into the next best version of yourself. Wow. Let's say that again slowly, shall we? And very, very carefully, for those of you out raking leaves or cooking dinner or driving carpool or stressing about the to-do list as we careen toward the holidays, ready or not, stop. Really listen fully, from your hair to your toes. Allow yourself the freedom to grow. This is modeled to us every single day by our friends who are our gardens and the plants of nature. In luminous beauty, inevitable decay and decomposition, in monochrome dormancy and vivid growth. Let's say it one last time. As the garden's blessing to you, as you think and plan for your goals and intentions in the coming weeks, coming year, and whole decade beyond it, allow yourself the freedom to grow. It's a permission slip we all need. Now, back to our conversation with Amy Merrick. This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with florist, traveler, and author Amy Merrick, describing her purpose and process that has resulted in the beautiful On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist. After trying to wrestle her story into one unfolding by seasons, she finally broke free of this preconceived concept into the freedom of sections getting at the essence of the flowers in her places over time, in the city, in the country, fancy things and humble pleasures. I think um, to kind of continually grow and deepen yourself and have have a new understanding, a new perspective, it's so important for me to always grow and, and change. And I think each one of the chapters in the book kind of feels to me like a different chapter of my life and my experience. And so I hope, you know, th- this is my first book, but I am excited to see what, what else I'll get up to with the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. And that was just beautifully articulated that how you embody that tenet of just honoring the need to grow and being brave into that, uh, despite it being challenging and sometimes scary. It's admirable, and I, I love it about your work. So talk to us about the structure of the book, Amy. Read the chapter headings for people, and I think that will give them a sense of the sort of comparisons and contrasts and these things you're putting together. 
So how the book is arranged is basically um, it, it opens with a small section that's called Arranging Flowers, which is actually a little manual. Um, it's almost like a book within the book where I took my inspiration from some of my favorite of flower arranging books from the 1950s and made just like a little old fashioned book that has all of the kind of hard won actual technical information about how I like to arrange flowers. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's almost like a little preface before the book starts. And then the chapters are as follows. In the city, in the country, fancy things, humble pleasures, and going far away. And I think, you know, when I first kind of thought about writing a book um, about flowers, you know, your, your instinctual crutch is to be like seasonal book, I'll you know I'll write about the seasons. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you love, you know, if you're a plant person or you know flower or garden person, like that's just the lens with, that you use to see the world around you. But that lens is different for every person, and it, you know, it's probably not really inspiring for someone in Southern California to like read how I feel about early spring when they look out their window and they see something totally different. So I think after maybe like a year of trying to put my experience into this, like through this seasonal structure, I was like, okay, this is just not working. I need to find something so much more kind of person, like deeply personal, Mm -hmm. but also somehow more universal, Mm -hmm. something that no matter who you are, no matter where you are, you can pick up this book. And as long as you love flowers, you, you can kind of, it'll resonate with you if you live in the country or if you live in the city. And I think that kind of sweet contrast was because I, I'm from the country, but I fell in love with working with flowers in the city. And so I really wanted to like have a place in the book that's like, how do you fall in love with flowers when you live in an urban place? And, um, and, and what do you, how do you do that? So is it like going to a museum and kind of falling in love with flower paintings or is it finding little flowers growing in the cement cracks? Um, or is it like using a floor, like a flower shop, like it's your garden if you don't have a garden. And I honestly, I've never had my own garden because I have lived in New York for 17 years um, on the third floor. <laughs> so it's like kind of manifesting a garden no matter where you are. And then the the amazing thing, you know, to kind of the, the next chapter is in the country. Um, and I was kind of thinking about, OK, the city versus the country and how they feel so different. But then I was like, you know, out in my family's house in New Hampshire and there's we have this beautiful meadow um, on the property. And I was looking at all these flowers and plants blooming and thinking, oh, this is so peaceful. And then I was like, oh, my gosh. But if I was one of these wildflowers, this would be so chaotic. Like, could (laughs) there be any more kind of wild and crazy urban metropolitan place to be a flower than in a meadow? It's like all of these people surrounding you. Everyone is like fighting for the same nutrients. Um, it's like this really difficult place you're trying to survive. Um, but also, you know, like the beauty of a meadow is that all of the grasses and flowers, everyone's stems are interlaced. So it's like through this community of, of neighbors is like how you're able to thrive. Mm -hmm. You know, if it was just one little piece of grass, like a, a, a wind would blow it down immediately, but it is this like support network of all of these people around you. So that was like my light bulb moment to be like, oh my gosh, the city and the country really are not that different after all. Right. So it was, you know, it's finding all of these different connections throughout the book. 
you know, it goes from the city to the country and being in the country and what it means to love flowers when you're there. And is that growing your own flowers or going to a flower farm or um, wandering through meadows? Um, And I love, I think one of the things that I love is how you did this wonderful job. And maybe this happened accidentally. I don't know. You will share that with us. But you really work hard to overcome or I don't know if you meant to, but you overcome preconceptions about what belongs together and how we see things. So your ability to switch the lens up, like you just described, of seeing a wildflower meadow and saying, oh, my gosh, that's as urban as it gets. And I'm guessing some of this fell into place for you when you decided to stop battling with trying to fit everything you were doing into seasons and instead found this alternate structure. Uh, But the fact that none of these things are mutually exclusive was just – it was a very beautiful epiphany, you know, and and it happens right off the bat, as you say, in those first two – sections about the city and the country, like when you find a flower growing out of a crack on the sidewalk and someone has taped it up on the wall so it doesn't fall over, and you contrast that with your epiphany in the wildflower meadow of how they're all holding each other up. There are just moments like this where you're like, that's awesome. Yay. (laughs) Thank you. Um, I think you know, they say they, they, there's like this funny thing that people say about like writing a book. And it's basically like you don't understand your life and then decide to write a book about it. Like, <laughs> the way to understand your life is to like write a book about it. Right. Um, and I think I had this really clever way of organizing the book where I was like, oh, it's the city and then it's the country. And then it's like all of the fancy flowers that are like roses and peonies and, you know, just all of the like super luscious, gorgeous, feminine, over the top flowers. And ways that, you know, you can, ways you can experience them, Mm -hmm. like floral perfume or like floral silk or um, just like really luscious ways to to experience flowers. And then I contrast that with like the humble chapter, Mm -hmm. which is like loving dandelions and and finding four-leaf clovers and um, arranging, not flowers, but arranging their shadows on your kitchen table and just beautiful, free, free ways that, that, that you can you know, just revel in like the luxury of nature. Um, but the, the amazing thing about this like little way that I have, oh, you know, kind of organized the book was that even I, like while I was working on it, I was like taking beautiful, you know, and I also took all of the photographs for the book. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was like walking around the city and then I would see like a beautiful towering sunflower and I would take a photograph of it. And then I would be like, oh, I can't use that though. Cause I'm like writing about sunflowers in the country. You know, sunflowers are so country and I have to write about that in the country section. And it wasn't until like the very end of the book, you know, the, the last chapter is about going far away to kind of see flowers and understand nature and stepping outside of your comfort zone. And it wasn't until the last chapter when I was kind of thinking about like, you know, how strange it is that you can go far away and feel really at home. And like the most beautiful part about traveling though, is like coming home and everything is new and the whole world is new that then I was like, Oh my gosh, there are no city flowers or country flowers or fancy flowers or humble flowers. And there, there is no far away and there is no home. You know, it's just like one, everything is just this kind of like one world. You know, everyone is like so desperate for, for ways that they can define themselves mm. or contain themselves. Mm. Um, 
and that that like actually no you can you can be all of the things you can be a city person and a country person or someone that loves wildflowers and who loves roses or you know a homebody with the spirit of a gypsy like you can be all of the all the things at once and that was like you know I had to basically finish writing the book to be like all right but now, now I understand. Um. <laughs> it is very much, and that sense does come across really effectively that this book is about how flowers grew you very much equal to how you have grown and worked with flowers. And um, if that's a lesson that even half of your readers absorb fully, then you have made a fantastic contribution to the literature. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Amy Merrick is a florist and a writer, a teacher and a student. She's with us today speaking about her first book, On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist. We'll be right back after a break. Hey now, it's Jennifer, thinking out loud this week kind of going a little further with that idea of allowing ourselves the freedom to grow higher and root deeper. The other visual truth I keep seeing in my mind's eye from Amy's story, her work, and her book processing these things in her life to share is the idea of reveling, reveling in the pure, unadulterated luxury of nature. So much of our work to be good people revolves around less. Less spending, less fat, less calories, less complaining, less plastic. All of which I'm for, by the way. But it has our brains focusing on the less. And as Amy points out geniusly, this sets us up in not only an either-or framework, but also in scarcity thinking. What if we work towards more, more of what we value rather than more of what we feel we've agreed to by default or been mass marketed or culturally backed into? Our gardens and our natural world offer out an insanely decadent, luxurious, and richly diverse abundance model to us every day. When we focus on more healthy soil, more flowering plants, more time in the sunshine, more gardeners, more collaboration, more community, more care, more rest, more honoring, and more proudly exclaiming what we value, then we are more. Just as the plants we love are perfect seed forms, succulent foliage, resilient root systems, astoundingly colorful and fragrant flowers and fruit, and organic, artful, sculptural forms. So too, we are more than any one form or season of us. We are all this and more, with and as a result of our gardening and nature-loving impulses. Together, We grow this world to be more of what we want, because together we are more. Now, back to our conversation with Amy Merrick on flowers, lessons from an accidental florist. 
This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. We're back now with florist, traveler, and author Amy Merrick, whose first book, On Flowers, Lessons from an Accidental Florist, offers out some whimsical and meaningful ideas for being with and learning from the flowers we love. So in the city chapter, I have in my finding flowers section, I have said that you can go to the flower market, um, which is, you know, kind of an obvious, if you live in a larger city, an obvious choice, um, which has, you know, flower markets have a large selection of both imported and, um, and locally grown materials. And I think the best part about going to the flower market is that you have all of these really knowledgeable people that you can just ask a ton of questions to. You know, they they are kind of like the keeper of, of a lot of information about how to make flowers last longer or what flower is what. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to a flower market, you should probably bring cash and um, and pester them with lots of questions. Yeah. And I love this one because if you're a florist, it is obvious that you would go to a flower market. If you're not in the floristry world, you might not even know that such a thing exists in your city. And if you know it exists and you enter it for the first time or you see where it is, it can be really intimidating. You're like, I don't think I belong here. So I loved this one because you gave great suggestions on how to just like get in there and make it make it happen. Yeah, and I think, you know, a lot of flower markets offer day passes for, for regular consumers. And I think it's just a great place to go. And the first time you go, you'll just be completely overwhelmed uh-huh. with yeah. with all of the different kinds of flowers. <laughs> um, so it is like it is like going to a garden. If you live in New York and you miss having a garden and you can't get to the botanical garden, like just go to 28th Street and and get yourself a nice coffee and and go through a stroll through the garden. But it's like the garden of the world. <laughs> um, <laughs> So if you if you don't have a, a flower market in your area, another heading, another section in the finding flowers section is is a farmer's market. And so even more than the flower market to me, the farmer's market is like the ultimate inspiration. And there will be a lot of cut flowers in the, in the growing season. But even in the off season, there's just so many beautiful things that you can find at farmer's markets if it's you know, gorgeous fruit or, or different colored cabbages or, you know, any, all of this kind of like seasonal bounty. And, you know, once I went to the Union Square Farmers Market in New York in January and was like, I know I'm not going to find anything good. This is January. There's just hardly anything. Um, and I went and I was still able to find all of these beautiful different kinds of produce that was like so colorful, all of, you know, radishes grown in greenhouses and purple cabbages and, you know, rainbow potatoes. And, and there's just still so many beautiful things um, at and any given week that, that you can find. In, in the city, kind of one of the most natural places that you'll see flowers are just kind of growing on the street in like alleys or in little cracks in the sidewalk. And, um, and that's kind of like become one of my joys is just to walk down down the street and see what's popping up where in unexpected places. So sometimes, you know, I'll cut little things from from cracks and alleys, but it is, you know, you have to be so incredibly sensitive um, to see if it's something that anyone else could appreciate or if it's only one. Um, 
So it's that's kind of like a use your best manners and never never cut anything that you think is either being tended or appreciated or loved by by anyone else. Mm-hmm. And the last place that is kind of a natural to look for flowers is just at the grocery store. And to kind of fancy your grocery stores will have a nice selection of flowers that you can just pick up by the by the bunch. But I also really like to just buy potted plants from the grocery store mm-hmm. and um Sometimes there'll be a pot of jasmine or a bunch of bulbs or something. And people always think, oh, but I need to keep them alive for a long time or I'm going to kill this this kind of plant. But I kind of think, okay, if it's something like a little pot of jasmine and you keep it in your kitchen for as long as you can and it blooms and you have it for several weeks, then that's great. You know, it's kind of given you what, what, it, what it had to give because some, some of those plants like are just not happy, not happy to thrive and in the kitchen, but I think okay, if you're willing to spend, you know, fifteen dollars on a on a bunch of flowers at the grocery store, then you can also spend that fifteen dollars on a nice potted plant. And if it only lasts for a month, then you like still came out wildly ahead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you have a couple sections in the book where you do this uh, kind of compilation of advice or ideas or a checklist, and I really love that. Another thing that you do is you will have a list. And I loved the list. So one of the lists is in country things and or in the country is the title of that section. And it's your list right at the end. And it says country things to do. Will you read that list? Sure. Country things to do. Pick your own flowers. Dry your sheets in the sun. Set a dinner table under the stars. Enter a flower arrangement in the country fair. Go barefoot. Use a gingham tablecloth, collect scented geraniums, throw a party on the solstice, learn to identify bird calls, grow edible flowers, support your local farmers, have an honor system flower stand, collect leaves on walks, go to a barn dance, drive with the windows down, drink your morning coffee in a garden, learn a cake recipe by heart, feed the birds, Keep a pair of clippers in your car. Leave a nice surprise in your neighbor's mailbox. Remember to look for shooting stars. (laughs) I loved loved your lists. Um, Okay, so now we're going to go to fancy things. And um, there, there were a lot of lovely things in here, but one of them had to do with, uh, I think this is where there's a, um, a vase. So describe a little bit about your uh, belief in vases and your kind of how you collect them, different ones you use for different things, and then maybe uh, describe this two-page spread uh, about a vase of consequence and a single breathtaking dahlia. So I think if you are a floral designer, vases are, you know, kind of half of your half of your love and half of your half of your job, um, because I think you know a vase can be like a real integral part of of your work, and sometimes it speaks just as as loudly as as the flowers that you choose to put in it, and a vase can kind of really give a, a presence. Um, to the flowers. And sometimes, you know, you just need a really exquisite 
vase and then you can put almost anything in it. You know, it doesn't even, you know, a, a, a really, really nice vase can give a lot of um, kind of elegance to an arrangement. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I collect all different sorts of vases. So it's not like I only have fancy ones. You know, I also, you know, love putting flowers in ketchup bottles. And in the city section, there's like flowers in a coffee cup. Um, so I think, I think, but I think the part of that is that, you know, a vase can really speak to the to the personality or spirit of an arrangement. Um, and in the fancy chapter, of course, I have to talk about fancy vases. And I have a great friend whose name is Frances Palmer, and she is a ceramic artist in Connecticut. And she's just been a huge inspiration of mine. And um, since even before I started my own business, and I primarily fell in love with her work because she grows the most exquisite dahlias. And I saw photographs of them and I was like, who is this woman and where did she get those flowers? I've never seen such beautiful dahlias. I need them. I need them. And then, of course, it, you know, I kind of found her website and realized, oh, my gosh, not only does she grow just the most beautiful flowers that I've ever seen, she also makes the most exquisite pots. And her, her vases are like, made for flowers mm-hmm. you know it's really rare that that a potter is also just completely flower mad so she knows like exactly what flower goes with what pot and 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 then she can actually make the pot so I feel like her pieces are just like heaven to arrange in and so you know when I was putting together the fancy chapter I thought I have to I have to do an homage to her and there's a double page spread in in the book that um is one of her vases on the left, and it is like a little narrow-necked kind of white earthenware um, single bud vase pot. Um, and in it, it has one of her dahlias, which I believe, oh my gosh, she could she would kill me, but I think it's Pentil watermelon is the, is the variety. It's like a big dinner plate that is kind of ivory in the center with kind of curling petals that go out to pink um, and it is exquisite and the left page spread is a is just a single dahlia in her face and then the right is an up close of the flower and the page says a vase of consequence and a single breathtaking dahlia the two could nearly drown you in beauty this francis palmer vase is like a pair of indulgent shoes whatever you put in it becomes chic how do you know if you have a vase of consequence if the thought of breaking it breaks your heart. And later in the book, there is a, uh, a section on breaking a vase, and <laughs> it, it is equally moving. Would you, would you like to walk through that? Sure. That story is from my time in Japan, and it is the story of how I broke a thousand-year-old vase. Um Mm. which is so heartbreaking mm-hmm, and so mm-hmm. terrifying and just like gut-wrenching to think about it and especially made even more so because it was like my Ikebana teacher's face um and you know I like I said earlier but he has become a great f- friend and he had actually invited me to stay in his house and he said use any pots you like make whatever you want and you know just use it make this like your home and so I, I did. <laughs> and, um, you know, I kind of, I accidentally broke one of these, one of his pots. And I swear to God, it was like, I hardly 
I actually never even touched the vase. I was like going for a vase next to it, picked it up and like just barely touched this um, kind of really rough Korean um, pot and just touched it on the lip and the lip just broke. And it was like panic, like I've never experienced of just like, oh my gosh, what have I done? What have I done? Um, And, you know, a few hours later when he got home and I kind of fessed up to this thing and I was like, look, I am so sorry. I'm just completely devastated. I broke one of your pots. And he said, oh my God, you know, show me, show me. (laughs) And I showed it to him and he was like, he was really, really, he, he, he was very calm, but he, he did say, Amy, that pot is a thousand years old. Um, and it was my father's, it was my father's favorite pot. And his father was also an Ikebana master. So he, um, and he said it was the last pot that he had used before he died. And I was like, just started sobbing uncontrollably. Um, and he, and then he was like, it's okay, you know. And he, he said, this pot has had a long history before you. Um, and now you are a part of its story. Um, and then he said, Amy, like, there's everything breaks in the end. Like all, all beautiful things will, will break in the end. Um, and it was just the most profound and moving reaction and, and moment in kind of my whole career with flowers, which is like, oh, right. Like all of the beautiful things around us, you know, it, it's all so ephemeral. Um, and we should just kind of love it and experience it while we can. the the crazy there's a funny addition to that story which I did not put in the book and this will be like a interview special it's like that (laughs) same same man gave me a vase which was like so you know it wasn't a thousand years old but but so special to me and just like my perfect shape for arranging flowers and it's so beautiful um and then two weeks after I got home, I was in New Hampshire. My mom was up visiting and she broke it. She, it was like on the mantle and she like turned and somehow it broke in kind of a similar way. And that just like the, the lip of it chipped off. Um, and, you know, my, my gut reaction is like blind fury, right? Like, oh, my God, my Japanese pot that my sensei gave me. <laughs> but it was such a great moment of being like, let it, you know, like, just let it go. Like, Amy, you can let it, you know. And so just his, his reaction has kind of touched all of so many different parts of my life since flowers or not. It's just like this beautiful kind of reminder of what's really important. I love all of these stories, Amy, and I have interviewed Frances. She was an early uh, guest on the program, and both you and Frances are in my first book, which comes out in March. And one of the things I noted about Frances was that her pots actually teach us to see how a flower is working or how it's moving or how it wants to be held or or displayed. Like it, Her pots show us how to see flowers, and I would say without hesitation that your your book and the stories you share in it offer us a a beautiful tribute to 
the many ways we can see flowers, and that is a beautiful expansion. I'd love to have you end by reading something uh, that you've chosen from the book that you think might speak well to, to, to readers and listeners. So I think what, what I would kind of like to read for everyone is a, just a little section of the introduction to the, the humble chapter. Um, and I worry that humble flowers don't always get the admiration they should. But then again, humble flowers ask for no admiration at all. They simply bloom as they are, whether they're tended or not. The first crocus of the year is a humble flower, its soft yellow petals pushing out of the ground, delicate and shivering. But don't be fooled into thinking that little yellow crocus is lowly. It takes amazing strength to withstand winter's last frigid gasps. We all start off humble, completely unafraid to admit how much we don't know. Where do clouds come from? Why do leaves change in the autumn? Why do flowers die? It's only as we grow older that we stop asking the questions that make us feel small. The more I observed of the whole natural world, not just the overtly beautiful flowers, the greater the sense of amazement I felt toward all things, both humble and ground. The word humble is derived from the Latin humus, which means the ground. It's only fitting then that flowers spring forth from the soil, rooted in humility from the very start. To be humble is not to be timid or passive, but to ground yourself in the knowledge of how much you have yet to grow. Thank you very much for being a guest on the program today. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you so much for having me. Amy Merrick is a traveling writer, florist, stylist, teacher, and student. She started her career as a florist in New York City. She's written about her experiences with flowers, gardens, and design for the Wall Street Journal, and she is one of the 75 women featured in my upcoming book, The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants, being published by Timber Press in March of 2020 in celebration of Women's History Month. There are so many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places. Join us again next week as we dive into our final episode of this year and this decade, exploring the power of good children's literature to inspire and inform all of us in nature and cultural literacy, literally changing our minds and empowering our hearts to grow a better world. Cultivating Place is a listener-supported co-production of North State Public Radio. To see the deliciousness of Amy Merrick's artistry as a floral designer, photographer, and stylist, step out of your holiday days and head to cultivatingplace.com this week. It'll be a welcome break to refresh you for the coming solstice. While you're there, make sure you're subscribed to the Cultivating Place podcast. With weekly reminders, it'll make sure you never miss an episode in the coming decade. Together, we grow. 
Our show producer and engineer is Matt Fiddler. Executive producer is Sarah Bohannon. Original theme music is by Ma Muse, accompanied by Joe Craven and Sam Bevan. Cultivating Place is distributed nationally by PRX, Public Radio Exchange. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.